This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Nobody in your profession is going to write about gas and oil in a race. I didn't retire. 
Ah. I was fired. I uh, put 29 years of racing experience to very good work. I bought a tavern. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace, and a track and a good bunch of people that truly do care about NASCAR history. And Steve, speaking of NASCAR history, I was right in the middle of some of it on Saturday night. Man, that was such a good time. I was fortunate enough to get an invitation to Morgan Shepard's surprise 80th birthday. Now, just saying that just doesn't seem right to me that it's Morgan Shepard's 80th birthday. He certainly doesn't look 80. I'll tell you that. Well, he doesn't act 80 either. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't have his roller skates there, but he's just made such a big impact on my career. I had such a good time seeing him and his wife, Cindy and his daughter, Cindy and the rest of his family. But as I was sitting at my table, waiting for everybody to arrive, I felt a tap on my shoulder and it was Dennis Dillard, who was the Bush series pace car driver and Dennis Setzer. And just like that, we were right back in the Bush series garage, just having a good time, just chatting, just catching up and everything. Well, then here comes Dennis Sigmund and Alan Shepard, two more Bush series officials. Steve, I can't even begin to tell you what it was like to see them again after all those years. That brought back such great memories of our time together in the Bush series. Sounds like it was a rather good family reunion for you, Rick. Well, it was a reunion. And I am thankful that I got to see Dennis Sigmund and Dennis Dillard and Alan Shepard and Dennis Setzer. Just so many other people who have played a part in Morgan's life and Morgan's career. But yeah, that was a good time, man. Oh, I bet it was. Those of us who know the Morgan Shepherd story and what a great story it is, it's just really great to see him reach 80 years old and be among friends and colleagues and enjoy himself. That being said, this week in our first segment, we are going to share the second and final installment of our interview with Bill, the hat man, Broderick. And you and he had a little bit of a trip down memory lane about your trip to Australia for the first NASCAR exhibition race there. He also talks about the legendary Unical 76 race stoppers program. And finally, Bill fills us in on his unceremonious release after nearly 29 years with that company. Yeah, it was kind of a bad way to be separated from something you've done and loved for so long. But I don't know that there's really a smooth way to do anything like that, Rick, especially when the the company you work for is bought up by another company that has its own agenda. Steve, then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the October 6th, 1983 issue of Grand National Scene. Now, October 6th, it seems to me like there's some kind of monumental significance to that date. Would you happen to know what that significance might be? Well, I think it's so significant that it ought to be a national holiday. Everybody should get off work on October 6th and celebrate my birthday. 
<laughs> no, you didn't tell anybody last week. I didn't know it was your birthday until I saw it pop up on Facebook or whatever. So, I mean, we couldn't celebrate the awesomeness that is Steve Wade. <laughs> Please. <laughs> well, your birthday was October 6th and Dell Earnhardt Jr.'s was Sunday, October 10th. Well, yesterday, October the 11th was my wife, Jeannie's birthday and also Jimmy Hensley's birthday. And today is Morgan Shepard's birthday and Ned Jarrett's birthday. A lot of good people born in October. Wouldn't you say, Rick? <laughs> well, what? Five out of six ain't bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I ain't talking about Jeannie either. <laughs> I know you're not. <laughs> That's an awful lot of birthdays for high level NASCAR dignitaries and Jeannie. <laughs> <laughs> the issue featured coverage of that falls North Wilkesboro event at that time and place in our sport. Would you care to take a guess on who won that race? North well, Wilkesboro Speedway, 1983. Oh, <laughs> Of course. Yeah, you're really I'm going not, out of limb on that one. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not the only one that knows that. You also had a news item in this issue featuring some hot rumors about Junior Johnson, Bud Weiser, Daryl Waltrip, Coors, Richard Childress, Piedmont Airlines, Terry Labonte, Billy Hagan, Dell Earnhardt, Rick Hendrick, and Wrangler. And suffice it to say, Rick, given all those names and sponsors, sounds like it was a mighty powerful silly season going on. Uh, you're talking about some high-level folks there, too. Yeah. And you were right in the middle of it, and you got the scoop quite a bit. So you did a good job on that one. Now, this week, we have increased Patreon support from Dave Sykes and PayPal help from Josh Ward. Now, I will say this. We didn't quite make my $25 a month, so I'll have to cut down to zero Diet Pepsi a day. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so I still get my one a day. Knowing you, Rick, that is quite a chore. You have no idea. But I do appreciate Dave, and I do appreciate Josh for their willingness to help out not only on my diet pepsi thing but i think it's cool that they are on board to help us support this podcast the diet pepsi thing yes that's a serious thing and it's something that i need to do to remain healthy for my family but also nascar history that's why we do this podcast and i appreciate josh and dave helping out rick you got to tell the listeners what it's going to take to get you to know Diet Pepsi's a day. None. I thought I was off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> no. One I thought is that not was a zero. one-time offer. Okay, all right. Okay, all right. Let's just say this. If we can get $25 more a month in Patreon support or 10 more written reviews on iTunes. Now let's say good written reviews, okay? <laughs> I don't I don't want 10 people to start lining up on iTunes saying we suck or anything, but 10 more five-star ratings and written reviews on iTunes or $25 a month in support on Patreon. Yeah. I'll give them up. That'll do it. Right. And put the poor diet Pepsi people out of business. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Listeners, you heard it. Time to start acting. <laughs> so 
if you can support us on Patreon, that address is Patreon, P A T R E O N dot com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. And also, just as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American City Business Journal's owner of the same brand. Well, another big event happened in 1988 in Melbourne, Australia. NASCAR held the race at Thunderdome. Bill, I know you were there because I was there, and that was a pretty wild time. Now, I'm going to ask you, talking about Australia, does this mean anything? (laughs) Hold it up a little bit higher. Can you see it? Hold it up a little bit higher. Higher? Oh, yeah. Oh, Lord, have mercy. (laughs) That is... (laughs) Golly. That is the writers and a bunch of the PR crew heading there. You're all friends in there. That's right. Drinking Victoria bitters. We were on our way. To, if you remember, we, we were on our way to see the uh, the outback. That's right. And we got slapped a beer. Remember? Yep. <laughs> quite a bunch. Quite a bunch of people. Oh yeah, I see it in the screen up there. A real bunch of people up there. And there's a guy right back here, Steve White. <laughs> yeah, I, I see them all, including you. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was great, Australia. Neil Bonnet won that race. That's right. Yeah, Neil Bonnet won that race, uh, and I, I'll never forget. We we just had a great time out there. Well, all of us did. We we really enjoyed it. I remember the, the we had hats with the little dingy things on them to keep the flies off of us, and uh, drank a lot of beer. And the Australian people are the most friendly people in the world. I agree. They are. I agree. You know, one of the Australian newspapers, I recall, had a pretty vivid description of you. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah. In fact, I got kicked off about what they called me. <laughs> I was, um, oh, God, I can't remember the exact words. Uh, I was arrogant to show off or whatever. Uh, and there was a word they used, and I said, well, of course I am. Yeah. I agree with them entirely. <laughs> oh, they, yeah, I, re- I remember that. I forgot all about that, Steve, until you brought it up now. Yeah. Now, they didn't care for me. That particular writer didn't care. <laughs> well, we, we weren't proper, I guess. Okay, I'd like to know about the race stoppers. They were around since 69. A couple of questions. Well, what, was your what was your job with them, and did you... They were, I was their boss. I happen to have uh, some photos here if you bear with me. Okay. Because uh, I figured you might have. That program originally started out as truck stoppers. <laughs> and the sales department used them for promotion in the opening of truck stops. And when I, the, the PR department really started to take off in 69 when I moved in. That was the first, Daytona 500 was the first race we ever had, the race stopper course. Well, Pure Oil had had Winky Louise as Miss Firebird and Linda Vaughn as Miss Firebird. And with the changing of the companies, they said, well, gee, one was good, 
more is better. <laughs> and so they hired girls. And when I went to work, I inherited the job, being the first, of being the boss of the race conference. <laughs> and it ended up to be a great program. And at one time, we had nine girls. I, uh, you may whoop them back wow. up here. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. know some of them. But I had, I had nine nine of them. At one, we never worked with them all at one time, but these were the race stoppers. They were all professional models all prefer, or had good jobs that they could talk about. When we would go do a television show, a talk show, we would talk about the race they were promoting and all, but they could talk about themselves. Because I had Toy Russell was uh, uh the makeup artist for, um, oh, God, the late night talk show guy. Go short for a kid. Oh, drawing a blank. And I had an audiologist and real estate. They were all college grads. And that's what made us different from just a, quote, beauty queen. Mm-hmm. And uh, that program uh, was a terrific program. It, it, nobody in your profession is going to write about gas and oil in a race. That's about as exciting as watching grass grow. I mean, it just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't fit unless something bad happens. Company got publicity from visual. Unical logo name. People were resenting. And if you saw uh, me or one of the girls, you saw Unical. So that program is what carried us not the written word. And that's what I had to work with on my approach to getting publicity for the company. And I'm especially proud of of the girls and what we did. We never had a scandal, never had in almost 29, 29 years that I ran the car, not one word of a scandal of any kind. It was just, uh, they were great to work with, but none of them had ever been to a race. I, don't, I can't remember any of my girls, any of the race suffers, had ever been to a race before they went to work for us. But they fell in love with racing, and they loved the people, and they loved the drivers. The hardest thing I ever, I had two hard, two rough moments was the race stoppers. One of my originals was a young lady, my name is Sharon Brown. Lived in Atlanta, tall girl you may know. I had to let her go. Not for addictions, but we had a rule the girls are not allowed to date anybody in racing or uh, anybody in racing or be seen or doing anything. Well, Sharon had, uh, was going with Peter Refson, had to deal with Peter Refson, the race, the Grand Prix driver, IndyCar driver. I knew about it. And I told Sharon, I said, Sharon, you're playing with fire now. I said, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but if word gets out or somebody, you know, if if it becomes known that you're dating and with Peter, I'm going to have to let you go. She says, I understand, Bill. She says, I know. I know the rules. I know what you're doing. Well, in Indianapolis, a, a female sports writer was looking for something to write about, and she wrote in a column or whatever that Sharon was dating Peter Refson, and they were an item and so on in the Indianapolis News. 
I had to call her. I said, Sharon, I'm going to meet. And I flew to Atlanta and I told her, I said, you knew the rules. She says, yep, I know. And it happened and I had to let her go. That was hard. And the second one was Doja Wall was my longest standing race stopper. Just a wonderful gal. Just a wonderful, terrific gal. And the time came, she was with us for about, oh, 20 years, I guess, 16 years, a long time. I had to let her go. I told her, I said, Doja, you're getting too old. Now, that's hard to talk to a woman to tell her she's getting, but she knew. She says, yeah. She says, I love it. And she was still a great looking gal and all, but it was the other girls were younger and all, and it showed. She she understood. And we had a going away party for her in Atlanta, the Atlanta race. And it was, that was an emotional thing. And that was really hard. And I stayed friendly with her. We, she was on uh, Facebook and we did stuff over the years. And she passed away a little over a year ago uh, from cancer. She got a, a real quick, very bad cancer. But uh, we were great friends and uh, that was very difficult. But other than that, we, the race stopper core was fantastic. We got gobs of publicity, Victory Lane. The, the photographers knew them. They knew photographers. We would set up shots. And it was, I think, to be humble me, one of the best publicity programs that ever came down the pike. Now, you said that you had rules that the race stoppers could not date the drivers. Did you ever have to set any of the drivers or crew members or people in the sport? Did you ever have to set them straight on how they were treating your race stoppers? No, I never say anything to them, but I warned the girls. I mean, hey, let's face it. They're beautiful women. They're working in a job. They know they're going to get hit on. And I told them so. I said, hey, everybody's going to hit on you. They're going to tell you every story, and you have to say no, but you can blame me. I said, so you tell them, gee, I would love to go out with you. Oh, I'd love but." That Broderick guy won't let me do it, <laughs> and I'll get fired if I find out. So go talk to him. He's the guy that's making life miserable for us. Well, that worked, and eventually, you know, after a while, everybody knew that they were going to go out, so that all eased off. A boy in the beginning, for a while, they, yeah, they all got hit on it, but I never had to say anything to the drivers, or I wouldn't do that because... Guys are guys, and racers are racers, and I knew what was going to be happening, so no problem there. How did the Henry McLemore Award come about, and what was your role, <clears throat> especially with the uh, banquet the Mac- Daytona every year? The, the McLemore came around. Uh, we wanted to do something for the media, recognize the media, and I asked Mr. France, Bill France Sr., I says, we want to do something, and what do we call it, Bill? He says, why don't you name it after Henry McLemore? Well, Henry McLemore was a sports writer and shared a sports box with Grantland Rice and Raymond Brown, all, all the famous sports guys, and he was a first national recognized writer to 
write, copy, and print on motorsports. And he was a friend of Bill Francis also. When after he retired from the paper, I think he worked for a little bit for Bill France. And France says, why don't you call it the Mecklemore one? I says, that's fine, Mr. France. Be glad to do it. So we went and uh, we put together, uh, I said, I, wanna, I want this thing to really be legit and it's going to do it. And we took the guys from the racing panel and the, the professionals such as yourself who knew motorsports and knew, knew the writers and everybody. And we set the criteria up that, uh, hey, this is going to honor Henry, but we want to honor somebody in the media for outstanding work that they do. And so we started out and we had a voting from a number, from all, from the panel, basically, I think it was a racing panel, there's a voting of all the motorsports broadcasters and writers. And uh, Royce Britt from the AP was the first guy to, to get the Mecklemore Award. How did the panel of experts come about as well as the record club awarded for qualifying at the Southern 500? Well, the racing panel came around. That was in existence before I went to work for the company. Pure Oil was, was, had the racing panel, but it was run by Daytona. Uh, the company was paying uh, the Daytona PR department to have the racing panel of experts was a group of motorsports writers and broadcasters to pick the winner of the race to establish basically the favorite driver to win the race. And we had a voting process and whatever, but just about everybody on cover nothing but NASCAR or stock car racing. And it was run by Daytona. And when I came on board as a company, uh, I said, you know, this, this can be more than just a stock car racing thing and, and get us a little more publicity. We need to incorporate open wheel racing, uh, all the major races. We need to do the major races and we need to run it out of the company office. We need to control it of who does what and how it's handled. So we took it over from Daytona and moved everything to uh, Palatine, Illinois at that time, which is where we were. Uh, I started running, I, I controlled the racing panel out of there and uh, we tried to make it as legitimate as possible uh, for true, true journalists, true broadcasters who were professionals, not just a, a weekend guy who once in a while or a sports editor who wanted to be on the panel and all. We tried to make it as professional as we possibly could, but we took over. But I inherited that program. When and how did you retire, Bill? I didn't retire. Uh -huh. I was fired. Uh -oh. Unical was sold in 1968 or 67. They were sold. Uh, Unical got out of business and sold the company to uh, Tosco. And uh, Tosco was an oil refinery in the East Coast. And they had those stations. They were uh, a refinery selling product to uh, cut rate gas stations. They didn't know they bought a racing division, but uh, they they took over and, and 
uh, a new broom sweeps clean, as they say. I wanted to run, I wanted to make 30 years for the company. And so I had a new boss in 1968. We ran in 68. Things were going along as, as they had been. And it was the end of the 1968 season that, uh, 68? Not 68, and then it was 97, I guess it was, in the 97 season. 68 when I started. <laughs> I about when I'm leaving, for crying out loud. I went in at the end of the season uh, because uh, Unical being gone, and I had stayed on with Posco as a uh, contractor. Uh, nothing changed, working out of the office, everything was going straight. And at the end of the season, I went in to talk to my, uh, the new boss that I've been working for all year. And I said, well, you know, season's over this is after the Atlanta race. I said, uh, I, I want to talk about working one more year before I retired. And we sit down and I went in you know, and he says, well, he says, I'm telling you, I, this is a quote. I don't need you anymore. I said, what? He said, no, I don't need you anymore. Uh, we're we're going to let you go. And I said, well, you're the boss. Okay. And uh, so that day I was fired. <laughs> but this is funny. I went in my office and I wrote up a little news release that the hat man got fired. And the day after I got fired in the USA Today, and the second page of the sports above the fold in the special block was a big headline, Hat Man Fired, and had a picture of me and Earnhardt and Victory Lane and did the whole thing. And I got <laughs> caught into uh, the office. What the heck is this? I thought, well, you fired me. There are people who they need to know. And here it was, and he got a call from the headquarters in Tosco because they had been deluged with phone calls saying, what's going on? Who's this guy, Broderick, and what are you doing? But anyway, I was out the door, so that's the way it worked. And then I, after I, for a year, I uh, put 29 years of racing experience plus about five years of journalistic media racing experience very good work. I bought a tavern. <laughs> and uh, I had to go to work. I was 24 hours a day. I never worked so hard all my life. <laughs> I was responsible for people. But the neighborhood tavern in my town, Blue Collar Tavern, Beer Shooter Joint came up, and my son wanted the tavern. And my wife got on my case. Because whatever my son wanted, my wife was going to, you've got to buy this tavern. I said, I don't want no tavern. I said, I don't know anything about uh, I ended up, I bought a tavern. Had it for 11 years. Uh, it was work. It, that was work. But it was it was fun. But uh, And when the depression hit in 08, that hurt us pretty bad. When the bubble housing bubble broke and everything. And eventually, then I had to turn it. I got pressured to turn the whole thing over to my son. Uh, I was smart enough when we formed the company. I owned the majority of the company and was able to control things. But uh, she wanted to turn it over. I turned it all over to my son. And uh, I kept my ownership. But eventually, uh, 
we just had problems and we had to get rid of it. And I got out of the tavern business. I know that you were known as the hat man, but I'm not sure that I ever saw you actually wearing a hat. Do you have any kind of hat collection from the victory lanes that you worked? I don't wear hats because I had a one-point block of hair, which I still have, <laughs> the good Lord. Uh, and I wasn't about to wear a hat. Uh, and I just didn't like hats. It's funny, the way the name Hat Man came around, it, people saw me on television in Victory Lane because of what I did. They didn't know who I was. They didn't know my name. I got no credits. That's fine. But I was there, week in, week out, any car, sports car, whatever. I happened to be in Victory Lane doing my thing. But I was handing out hats, and it was part of the B-roll. They always showed me throwing the hats on. And it ended up, I'd be walking down, I'd be walking somewhere, and a fan would go, hey, hat man, how you doing today? Hey, hat man, what's going on? And it stuck. I became the hat man. <laughs> Fight with me. No problem. Yeah. That's how the name came around. Uh, and it just and when people, when I was in writing, and people say, oh, the hat man did this, or one reason or another, and I became the hat man. And in fact, I went, I had a trademark for a while. I trademarked the hat man so nobody could steal it. Because my ego wouldn't let me do anything else other than that. Uh, but it, it worked out well, and um, it's just one of those things that came around. Bill, how would you like to be remembered by race fans? By racers? Oh, man, that's a good question, Rick. I just like to be remembered as a guy who did his job, did it good, and contributed in a small way, hopefully, I, I hope so, to make uh, the sport a little better uh, for the viewers, for the people who are in sport, by uh, making their job easier and by making the entertainment side, the victory lane side and all, a little more enjoyable for the viewers, for the people out there who are watching right now. And if I could just remember, there's a guy who uh, did his job well. As a PR man, uh, I never liked anybody. I had never, never pulled any shenanigans. A lot of times I never let the facts get in the way of a good story. But uh, we, we, somebody who did his job well, and was fair to everybody. That if, if they could just say that, I'd be perfectly happy. Well, Bill, to me, you were all that. And on a personal note, I can honestly tell you that knowing you all these years in the sport made that sport and the working in that sport much more fun than I ever thought it would be. And I thank you for it. Well, in those days, I, I thank the good Lord all the time, and I was part of the, quote, golden age of stock car racing. People have called it that. Maybe it was, maybe, maybe it wasn't. But I was part of that golden age of stock car racing. And it uh, 
It's just time, right place, right time, and doing everything, being able to help out. I remember one time we were in Indianapolis. Jim Hunter was writing for the Atlanta Journal, and Mark Donahue won the race. And I had an airplane at Indy. I had a, I was borrowed a company airplane. They had a little twin beach that they didn't, nobody liked to fly in, and I was able to steal that every once in a while. <laughs> and I was going to get guys from Indianapolis down to Charlotte. And Jim Hunter, uh, who later be, went to work for NASCAR, was a, a motorsports writer, very good, was covering the race. Well, we were on the, he was writing the lead. And I told Jim, I said, Jim, I'll write a sidebar for you because I know you got to do one. That's a sidebar for people watching is a column type uh, feature. And he said, oh, great, fine. We get out here that much quicker because I want to get everybody in an airplane head for Charlotte. And so I wrote a sidebar on Mark Donahue. It was his birthday when he won the race. Mark and flying, everything went on. Well, it ended up later on, I found out that good old Jim entered my story under his byline, and that was fine. I told him to put his byline on it, entered his story in a journalistic contest and won a $100 first place prize with my story. And I said, Jim, where's my cut? What? What are you talking about? There ain't no money here. <laughs> Never saw a dime of the money, but... That's the life of a PR man. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. And Steve, you started off this week's installment of the interview with Bill by asking him about Australia. And the next thing we know He's holding up a photo to the camera on Zoom, and it's him and a group of media members who were in Australia for that race. So just for our listeners, tell us what was going on in that photo. Where were you headed? Now, let me explain why we were over there. NASCAR had arranged an exhibition race at a place called Thunderdome in Melbourne. That was our creation, Mr. Bob Jane, and he wanted to get his track off to a great start. So he negotiated with NASCAR and various NASCAR teams to come over and help him stage an exhibition race. And when that happened, of course, several media members, and I was one of them, got the opportunity to fly to Australia to cover that event. And many American drivers like Dave Marcus and and Neil Bonnet and several others were going to join several Australian drivers. So when we got out there, the press headquarters was the old Melbourne Hotel. All right. And that's where we stayed. Well, the track had arranged for us to go out and have dinner at an Australian sheep station. Now, <laughs> in Australia, a station is a ranch. They piled us all in the bus and gave us a slab of Victoria Bitter's beer. A slab is a case in Australia. So our various media members and uh, PR reps piled into that bus, and there was Bill Broderick at the head of the bus just leading the program, telling us where we were going to go and everything like that. We just started partying on that bus a little bit and rode it all the way out to the sheep station and had a great time at the sheep station. They had Australian music and Aborigine dancers and a great dinner. It was all put on just to have everybody have a good time from driver 
to mechanics, to PR people, to media members. You mentioned one story where one of the Australian riders had some things to say about Bill in particular. What was that story? Well, actually, he was teeing off on the entire NASCAR nation that arrived there. I mean, he oh. thought that was beneath him. He thought, well, he didn't use the word rednecks, but that's apparently what he thought everybody was. And he, he was really being snooty about it. And he singled out Bill because of Bill's distinct appearance, you know, <laughs> his red pompadour, his many, many rings, and said that Bill was a garish type and uh, said that Bill would look like the ringleader, a very garish and unsophisticated phony type of guy. And Bill responded to that by saying, hey, I don't mind being garish, but I am not phony, not in the least. <laughs> That's our Bill Broderick. <laughs> call me what you want to, but don't call me phony. <laughs> That's right. Bill made a comment that I thought was really interesting. I think he did have a point when he said that no journalist is ever going to write about gas or oil unless something goes wrong obviously. And he was the PR guy for the gas company in NASCAR. So what's he going to do to get his product noticed? What's he going to do to get his company noticed? So what does he do? He makes sure that he's in victory lane wearing his union 76 shirt. And yeah, he's, he's noticeable. He's got the big hair, like he said, and he's got the rings on his fingers and the big sunglasses. And so, yeah, he's going to be noticed. But what he also does is he starts bringing the race stoppers to the track to be included in the victory lane photos. And they've all got their union 76 shirts on. And Steve, he did say that while he was working with the race stoppers, he did encounter a couple of tough situations. There was a rule that they couldn't date anyone in racing. And one of the race stoppers, Sharon Brown and F1 driver, Peter Revson were evidently an item. And a reporter in Indy wrote that they were dating, and that was that, and she had to be let go. Now, the other was Dosha Wall, who was a race stopper from the very beginning of the program in 1969 all the way through 1983. And according to what Bill said, she was told that she was too old to continue. Now, she didn't do anything wrong. Right. That's correct. And she was still an incredibly attractive woman. And so that part of the ways must have been really tough. Yeah, it was. But though she didn't complain about it, she knew what the regulations were when it came to having a job like hers. And I'll tell you something else about Dosha. He was easily the most well-known of all the race stoppers, the veteran of the bunch. And there was another side of her that not a whole lot of people knew anything about. I remember coming back from the track in Darlington, that's Southern 500, very hot day. And Doja had already gotten back to the motel and was sitting out by the pool. And she had a, like a Sony Walkman with, with the earphones on. She was, so I, she smiled at me and I walked up and I said, what what you listen to? What kind of music you listening to? And she said to me, well, Kenneth Copeland, actually. Well, what does that tell you right there, Rick? Really? She was, a woman, she was a woman of faith, just like you. And she did pass away. Uh, recently in recent years after a battle with cancer. So yeah, it was a very aggressive form of cancer. Uh, she had it. I don't think she lasted any longer than six weeks. Real shame. Steve, you also asked Bill about the Henry McLemore award. Tell our listeners 
who Henry was and what that award meant. Well, Henry was one of the first writers to cover racing on a regular basis. And that was the natural choice after Unical went to Bill France and said to the fact that they wanted to sponsor an award for media excellence. Now, what the award is for is for lifetime service to motorsports as a media member. So the candidates had to be carefully selected because this was not a yearly award for one-time excellence. This was lifetime award. It meant a lot to everybody. What year did you win it? I won it in 1989. Long time ago. Yeah, I know. What did that mean to you personally? Well, I'll tell you, I was deeply honored because I was in some august company. I mean, really, really some of the best writers in the business. It was very rewarding and very humbling. And I do want to say the award continues to this day. Does but it really? Name, I did not know that. Yeah, it's, the name has been changed. The American Motorsports Media Award of Excellence. Already have some awards already made up. And I think the fans will have a chance to see this award much more often than they have in the past. There's some big plans for it. So do you get a vote on who? Oh, yeah. All the members, all the winners get a vote. Oh, really, Steve? Yeah. Oh, really? No, no, Rick. Okay. Man, your Christmas present just got a whole lot better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rick, I'll tell you one thing that I'm really proud of. Winston Cup scene has more McLemore winners than any other single publication. I was fortunate to win it. Deb Williams has won it. Kenny Bruce has won it. And now Bob Pockers, who's with Fox, but he's also won it. That's for us. That is amazing. Steve, finally, Unical was bought out by Tosco. And at the end of the 1997 season, Bill was let go after almost 29 years with the company. And so you think about all the victory lanes that Bill had been a part of for 29 years at the end of the 1997 season. And then what happens in the 1998 Daytona 500? Dale Earnhardt wins his first and only Daytona 500. And Bill Broderick is not able to take part in it. And I know that that must have just been such a really, really, really tough thing for Bill to take. Now, we didn't ask him about that. Probably should have. But you just think about all those years that he had spent in Victory Lane and then to not be able to participate in such a momentous one. Just thinking about it makes me really feel for the guy. Yeah, that had to be really tough on him, really tough on him. But as he told us, Tosco, the company that now owned Unical 76, didn't want to have anything to do with racing. And when they cut it off, they cut off hard and sharp and quickly. And unfortunately, Bill was caught into that situation. I don't want to leave it on that situation. I don't want to end this segment on that note. So Bill Broderick in the future, how do you think he will be remembered? Well, mostly by fans as the hat man, I think. That's how most fans in the grandstand saw him. But let's make this perfectly clear. Bill was a lot more than a very obvious Hat man type. He did so much more. We've already talked about the Macklemore. You know, he also helped create 
the Unical 76 panel of racing experts. And that was a group of media guys that selected by Bill to be on this experts panel. You had to prove that you were worthy of that because to get on that panel, you had to submit clippings to Bill and make sure that you had the stuff to be called a panel of racing experts. Now, what they did was they would predict the winner and the winner's average speed for every race. Now, think about this. Once they sent in their votes, Bill would write a press release, and it would say something like, the experts picked David Pearson to win at Darlington with an average speed of so forth and so on. Well, that was, send- really, that was really going out on a limb, David Pearson <laughs> winning at Darlington. <laughs> <laughs> That was really a stretch. <laughs> Think about this. He would, he would send out this release. And many newspapers, particularly the smaller ones, would win that release the weekend of the race with a headline that says, Experts Pick Pearson to Win. That yeah. was great PR. He also helped to create the Unical Darlington Record Club. And that was based on qualifying speeds for the Southern 500 and some of the top drivers in the sport were invited to a banquet to celebrate the new member of that club at every Darlington's other 500. That's where he got the competitors involved in what was going on and got Unical's name in their midst. So considering all he's done, panel of experts, McLemore Award, the Darlington Record Club, the Hatman and Victory Lane with the race stoppers, Bill was a tremendously effective PR man. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, this segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. And Steve, this week, we're going to go back to the October 6th, 1983 issue of Grand National Scene. Darrell Waltrip pretty much had the Holly Farms 400 at North Wilkesboro in hand from the very start. He started from the pole. He led a total of 252 laps and beat Del Earnhardt to the finish line by 2.7 seconds. Dale was evidently bothered by gas fumes that day. And according to a photo that ran in this issue, he was pretty beat up at the end of the day. And there weren't any quotes from him. He was worn out. Plus, DW picked up 15 points on Bobby Allison in the fight for the 1983 Winston Cup Championship. With four races remaining after North Wilkesboro, Bobby's lead had shrunk over Daryl to just 
91 points, and DW wasn't giving up the fight. DW said in this issue, we needed to win here. We needed the points. It's black and white. We have to win, and they have to lose. We can catch them. If we get 30 points at Charlotte and 30 to 40 in Rockingham, then this thing will be pretty close going into Atlanta. Now, Darrell did close up the gap even more, but still wound up 47 points at the end of the year, and Bobby did win the championship in 1983, which turned out to be the only championship of his career. Well, Rick, not only was that his only championship, but guess which team he was driving for when he won that championship. Here's a bit of irony. It was Die Guard Racing, the very team that Darrell had to buy his contract to get a chance to drive Virginia Johnson. I think that's pretty ironic. And I think it's also a little bit of a reason for the rivalry between the two. I think you're right. (laughs) I found this note really interesting. This was only the third race in which Darrell had used power steering. And in my mind, using power steering would have made his job easier. But Darrell Waltrip was not a fan of power steering. This is what he said. I don't like it. The power steering isn't safe. It's the same power steering that is used on a passenger car. It is simply put on a race car and it wasn't designed for it. It is subject to break. And when it does, you can't steer the car. I hated to have it put in, but everyone else did it. And when I finished third at Richmond, I realized that the two cars ahead of me had it. And it became a situation where I'd be handicapped. You've got to have it. And he is right. And he's also right when he says if that power steering broke, you could not steer the car. It was like manhandling a locomotive. I mean, it just would not go anywhere. But as he also said, you had to have the power steering because everybody was using it. And yes, it made the car easier to drive and control. And you know who gets credit for bringing power steering to NASCAR racing? That would be Jeff Jeff Bodine. Bodine. However, there was also this. Darrell said, I don't even feel like I've run a race, though. It might lengthen my career considerably. (laughs) (laughs) So, Steve, all those lean years Darrell faced at the end of his career, I guess, can be traced directly back power steering (laughs) well that's one conclusion wouldn't you say (laughs) there was only one caution in this race and that came late in the race when dick brooks spun between turns one and two on lap 377 only six of the 30 starters fell out well unusual for north Wilkesboro, but let's be honest only six drivers falling out of the race is kind of unusual for any short track race there evidently wasn't a whole lot of beating and banging going on in this event. Everybody <laughs> had some much to be. <laughs> well, apparently not. And another thing that short, short tracks caused was, was uh, rear-end gear problems back in those days and burning up your brakes. And that took a lot of drivers out of many short track races. Daryl already had a contract with Junior Johnson, according to what he said in this issue. But if he thought that that was going to be the end of him in silly season rumors that year, he was quite mistaken. And I mentioned it in the intro, but you had a story in this issue that was packed with juicy little tidbits. I guess even a blind squirrel can find an acorn every once in a while. 
<laughs> I'll go along with you on that one, Rick. <laughs> this awards time. or no awards. <laughs> yeah. This one almost jumped off the page because it just seemed, in today's world, it just seemed so quaint. Budweiser was said to be in negotiations with Junior Johnson and Associates to sponsor Daryl Waltrip and new teammate Neil Bonnet at a combined price tag for two teams of $2.1 million. And if that was true, which it was, it was the biggest sponsorship deal in NASCAR history to that point. $2.1 million for two teams that were championship caliber. Well, it was going to take that kind of money for Junior Johnson to agree to a two-car team. No doubt about it. If somebody had come to Junior with a lot less money and offered the same thing, he would have never done it. One thing you could say about Junior during his entire career as a team owner, he seldom, if ever, spent his own money. <laughs> so when you get a $2.1 million offer, you take it. Budweiser was already sponsoring Billy Hagen and Terry Labonte, but not nearly for the kind of money that it was reportedly going to be spending with Junior. Billy Hagen hadn't heard at that point or wasn't telling at that point whether or not Budweiser was going to return. But if it did, Budweiser could have been lined up to sponsor three teams in 1984. I don't think Billy ever needed to wonder if Budweiser leaving when he heard about that offer for Junior Johnson. They were gone. Just listen to these next few huge monumental dominoes that could have fallen another way and had a huge impact on NASCAR history. You wrote in this story, another beer, which may very likely come into the fray next year is Coors, which was first rumored to be in line for the Johnson sponsorship. So there's that. Then there were rumors that Richard Childress was looking for a sponsor willing to pay more than what he was getting from Piedmont Airlines at that time. RC denied those rumors and said that what he wanted was for Piedmont to stay and said, in fact, I'm trying to get all the paperwork together for next week. I want to work it out. I will say that I wouldn't go to another sponsor, even if it offered me $200,000 more than what we're now getting. Oh yeah. You want to bet? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say Richard's nose was growing as he said that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say that Richard was either lying outright or he was a really good poker player. <laughs> Hold my watch. <laughs> and then finally, there was Dale Earnhardt. He was looking for another ride because the engines in Bud Moore's Fords simply couldn't hold up to his right foot. And he was rumored to be talking with Ray Mock team owners, Butch Mock and Bob Rahilly. And Dale was also reportedly talking with Harry Hyde about a team being formed by Charlotte car dealer, Rick, quote unquote, Hendricks. Come on, man. Get your facts straight. <laughs> Award winner. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Charlotte car dealer, Rick Hendricks and CK Spurlock. You wrote one source very close to the situation said that Earnhardt has until October 17th 
to sign a contract with Wrangler, which will honor the final year of its contract with Bud Moore in 1984. It appears the only point of negotiation is the amount of upfront money for Dale Earnhardt. Well, so wherever Dale went with Wrangler as his sponsor, he was evidently going to get a chunk of the money. <laughs> Which might have been the only way that he was going to go with Wrangler. He wanted his cut. So we've got Junior Johnson and Budweiser and Daryl Waltrip, Coors, Richard Childress, Piedmont Airlines, Terry Labonte, Billy Hagan, Dale Earnhardt, Rick Hendrick, and Wrangler all in the mix. And all those things finally play out after all the cards are shuffled and dealt. It all works out. It does all work out, but you consider how those dominoes could have fallen one way or the other and changed how everything worked oh, out. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Well, according to Junior Johnson, all the way back in our sixth episode, he had actually signed Coors as the sponsor and that he had made the decision to fire Daryl Waltrip in order to hire Dale Earnhardt. Well, when Budweiser came knocking with a couple of million dollars to spend, Junior said that he placed Coors with Bill Elliott and Dale Earnhardt and Wrangler with Childress. He pretty much had to do that because I think he said, believe it or not, I think that he said that Budweiser didn't want Dale Earnhardt, and that's what caused all the changes to be made. That left Piedmont Airlines to sign with Billy Hagan and Terry Labonte, and they went on to win the 1984 Winston Cup Championship together. Piedmont got its money's worth out of that, don't you think? There was one last note in the story, and it said that there could be a shakeup at Petty Enterprises, which might include an alteration in personnel. Steve, here is what I thought was so absolutely fascinating about that comment. And it wasn't even a complete sentence. It was just tagged on at the very end of a paragraph of rumors that you had heard. This was the week before Charlotte when Petty Enterprises was caught with that big engine and the tires on the wrong side of the car. So what that says to me is that there was already trouble brewing on that team and i agree with you and you talk about a personnel alteration that certainly happened yeah richard left at the end of the that's, that's what <laughs> that's exactly i would what say I that's a pretty big alteration in personnel <laughs> but yeah i thought that was so fascinating that even before charlotte and i don't know that i thought that the charlotte deal was the beginning of the trouble but that just said it in black and white that there was already a cloud hanging over level cross at that time. Well, that wasn't the beginning of the, of the problems, but I do think that it certainly contributed to them very much. So, yeah, I think it probably brought it to a head. Now there was also a short feature in this issue on independent driver, Mike Potter, who owned a towing company in Johnson city, Tennessee. And two things about that feature kind of jumped out at me. My dad was born and raised in Johnson city and actually graduated from East Tennessee state university there in Johnson city. And I don't know that I remember Mike Potter being from Johnson city. Well, the other was, and I think I might've mentioned this on the show before, 
but it's been a while and hey, I enjoy telling the story, so I'm going to tell it again. <laughs> but my very first Daytona 500 ever in 1992, I held the signboard for Mike's team during pit stops. And then when he fell out of the race, I hopped over pit wall and helped push the car back to the garage. Steve, I was a participant in the Daytona <laughs> 500. How do you like me now? In all seriousness, Rick, they had to be a wonderful experience for you. It was awesome. I will never forget that. And yeah, Mike didn't run competitively that day and he did fall out of the race. But just the feeling of going over the wall and putting my hands on a race car during a race and actually helping push it back to the garage, that was pretty cool. There could not have been anything better for you, Rick. What a way to get involved. At last, I always enjoy coming across the statements of circulation that seem printed in the paper from time to time. Would you care to take a guess at what Grand National Scene's total paid circulation was at the beginning of October in 1983. I say around 20,000. Very good. 22,795. And with all the freebies and everything factored in, all the issues that were given away at the racetrack, all the ones that were given out when you bought a subscription or whatever at the racetrack, the total press run was 24,000. Six hundred. Well, imagine that, Rick. Now, let me explain to you. When I got there, I think it was less than two years before this, the circulation was 9,000. And in the space of, let's say, a couple of years, it grew to 24,000. There was a reason for that. We just talked about all these rumors and tidbits and driver and sponsor changes that were going on and duly reported by the scene. That is what made the difference fans couldn't find that information out anywhere else not on tv not in their local papers and not on nascar radio shows they found it at scene and that's the reason they subscribed to scene because scene could give them what they could not find anywhere else let's put this into perspective under your leadership when you started in 1981 to 1983 the newspaper a little more than doubled in size. When I started in November of 1994, the week after I got there, the paper went over 100,000 in paid circulation. I remember that. Yes, I do. So you doubled it in size. I quadrupled it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Rick, I'm going to let you live that fantasy. Go right ahead. <laughs> I guess it had to do with me being a Daytona 500 participant. <laughs> man, this is a tough crowd today, man. Jeez. <laughs> Next time we record, how about you eat your Wheaties beforehand or something? <laughs> Hi, this is Bobby Labonte. Hey, race fans. This is Brett Bodine. Hello, I'm Buddy Parrott. Hi, I'm Hutt Strickland. Hi, this is Tony Liberati, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast, where we don't let facts get in the way of a good story.
Steve, this podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace, and in all seriousness, I really appreciate Chris and Jennifer and Jeff and everybody out there at Las Vegas. They believe in what we're doing, and words cannot express how much that means to me. I look forward to working with them for as long as they decide to sponsor this show. They are good folks, and they put on a good product out there. So if you do want to plan a trip for next year, consider going to Las Vegas. They are truly a showplace destination. So, Steve, we mentioned this in the intro. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast at. That helps, and it helps get attention for our show. And it helps us get Rick off those Diet Pepsis. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. <laughs> so finally, we do need to thank everybody that helps put this podcast and make this podcast what it is. Peter Salino and the team at Centaur Media. Sound help is provided by Todd Phillips. Video production is by NASCAR Man. And music is provided by Joey Step and Frantic Radio. And thank you one and all. All right. Have at it. Uh, right. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Ways. Uh, try it one more time. Uh, you you, you kind of uh, uh, distorted a little bit. Oh, okay. To fire Daryl, that he had made the decision to fire Daryl, to fire Daryl Waltrip. 